We turn to God's word, as Len was praying there, line up our lives with his. And part of the way we do that is he reveals his thoughts to us, and so we turn to his word, we listen to him, and we submit, we get our hearts in line with what he says. And we're not there yet, but I think in the last chapter, maybe it's next week, we, he talks about the plumb line, God's holding the plumb line beside the wall, are getting things in line. Oh, are we adjusting? We adjust our attitude to God's, not the other way around. Uh, thank Lynn for leading in worship, and the praise team, Mandy Upshaw on flute, uh, Elaine Edgecombe, and Tori McBride on the vocals. A lovely job. So our sermon title from Amos 5 and 6 this morning, Luxurious Living or Rewards for the Righteous. And the first section, my, what a strong family resemblance. If there's one thing the younger generation is hungry for these days, it's authenticity. We want people to be real, not fake. We want worship to be real, not fake. Genuine, not fake. And that's part of the problem with Israel is they are faking their worship. We have no time for people who lie to us, try to put one over on us, aren't being genuine and truthful with us. Deceit destroys relationships. Unfortunately, it's all too easy to fake it convincingly these days. Uh, We sort through our photographs carefully and post only the complimentary ones to social media. That way, people only ever see the best side of us. Meanwhile, our family and closest co-workers who are around most of the time get the joy of putting up with the real us. Comedian Tommy Smothers was a great actor, which comes with its own level of professional phoniness. He once observed, The best thing about getting older is that you gain sincerity. Once you learn to fake that, there's nothing you can't do. French student Jean Louviau traveled for several months through Europe with a fake photograph on his passport. He was never detained, even though the photograph was of his cocker spaniel, said a red-faced border official. It's the way kids wear their hair these days. (laughs) And did you hear about the restaurant in Alberta that just last month was forced to close for a few days? Public health inspectors say some of its staff accepted photos of patrons' dogs instead of their vaccine passports to dine inside. Yep, that's right. Two test shoppers were allowed to dine inside the restaurant at separate times after showing a photo of a dog and personal identification. In both instances, a staff member made it appear as if they were scanning a QR code before checking ID. Apparently, the underage host would be getting some mandatory retraining before the restaurant reopened. Wow, Mrs. Smith, your hair has certainly been getting pretty long and shaggy lately, hasn't it? Must be that new shampoo you're using. Jesus reminds us that Satan is a deceiver. There's no truth in him. John 8:44. when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus accused those who opposed the truth he taught of being children of the devil, sons of Satan. When we fake it and are hypocritical, we are showing a resemblance not to God, but to the evil one. In our passage today from Amos chapters 5 and 6, the prophet points out how fake the Israelites were being in their worship 
and how falsely and corruptly they were treating their neighbors. Yet the Lord was beckoning them back to follow him with truth and repentance. Next section, it's your funeral. Amos begins this section as if he were preaching a funeral sermon for the Israelites, as if they were already lying dead there in the casket and he were preaching mournfully about their demise. I don't think Robert Schuler would have invited Amos to speak at the Crystal Cathedral. Not really the most positive approach. Amos 5.11. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament. Lament, that's to deal with funerals. I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out A thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. It's a lament, a funeral dirge. The northern nation is fallen, done for, never to rise again. It's decimated from a thousand to a hundred, from a hundred down to ten. And that's exactly what would happen a few short decades later. Uh, Samaria, the capital, and the whole nation would be conquered in 722 B.C. and sent into exile. Now remember, Amos is predicting this when everything's rolling along great guns. The economy is booming. Jeroboam II has succeeded in recapturing cities and restoring the country's boundaries to the greatest extent it ever had, back to Solomon's time and its golden age. So, Predicting a funeral makes quite a contrast. Amos's word, woe, seems not to fit. Amos 6.1, woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. They were feeling secure in their mighty fortresses and huge mansions. They had lots to eat and drink, so thought they could afford to be complacent. But Amos's vivid word pictures present a different time, one that would come true after the Assyrians invaded. Uh, chapter 5, 16 to 20. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? Sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? You escape from one thing only to fall prey to another. Escape the lion, but you meet a bear. Arrive at your house breathless only to be bitten by a snake. The day of the Lord they supposed would bring victory for them would turn out to be quite the opposite. Wailing, cries of anguish all over town, farmers weeping, even sadness in the vineyards. God would pass through their midst, 517. Pass through. 
Israel's foundational story was the exodus from Egypt at the time of the Passover. Back in Exodus 12.12, God passed through the Egyptians in judgment and struck down the firstborn, but passed over the Hebrew slaves. This time would be different. He would pass through them, bringing death and exile. The gloomy prediction continues in 6.8-11. to The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone still hiding there, is anyone with you? And he says, no. Then he will say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Sounds like some scene out of a zombie movie. Normally, bodies were buried in Israel, not burned. But if all ten in a house were killed, and that was happening everywhere, it might be necessary to burn the bodies because there wasn't time or labor available to give them proper burial. Rotting corpses could bring disease and epidemic. And when the collector comes, the warning is not even to mention God's name even in prayer because the judgment is so severe. The disaster would overtake the whole northern nation. 6.14, the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. In other words, all the way from your northern to your southern extremities, the entire territory. Next section, flourishing by force. Amos painted such a dire picture. Was this funeral necessary? How come the nation would go from flourishing at its historical best to total destruction in just a few short decades? For you mystery lovers, what's the anatomy of this crime? Who done it? How could this grisly death have been averted? Our passage sums it up in three broad areas, flourishing by force, fake worship, and fouling what's formed for good. First, flourishing by force. Economically, the nation was flourishing at this time under the long and successful reign of Jeremiah II. But the little guy at the bottom of the economy was footing the bill. Chapter 5, 10 to 12. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, you have built, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Yes, they lived in impressive mansions made of stone and drank freely from lush vineyards, but they twisted justice in the court system, accepting bribes grinding the poor to extract grain, even though the rich were already living lavishly. They despised anyone who was truthful and oppressed anyone who tried to live in a righteous way. They ran roughshod over justice. Their motto in managing their affairs might have been, just get her done. 
regardless of how many bodies were thrown under the bus. See a further description of their lifestyle in 6, 4 to 6. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Hmm. Drink wine by the bowlful? Today we might say they drank it by the bucket. Well, why not? When all your physical needs are looked after and you're set for life, why not live it up and sink into the anesthetic of liquid pleasures? Finest lotions would hint at slaves satisfying every whim in massage parlors. Chomping on choice lamb, sleeping in on beds inlaid with ivory, spending your day idly listening to the top 40. These fat cats had it made. But their consciences were inoperative. They did not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. It didn't bother them that courts were so corrupt or that the lives at the other end of the economic ladder were tangled in such misery. Consequently, these in first class would be first to go when judgment happened, 6 verse 7. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Next section, fake worship. Part of the reason they didn't grieve over the country's ruin and were so oppressive to the lower classes was because their worship was off base. Worship anchors values. What we worship, we treasure. If we worship a righteous and holy and loving God, we'll want to be like that. Worship informs values, which inform choices, our daily decisions. When the northern kingdom split off from the south, from Solomon's son ruling Judah, the first king, Jeroboam, created alternate worship space at Bethel, calf idols that would be a focus for religious ceremonies, so people wouldn't have to travel down to the other country, to Jerusalem in the south. Subsequent kings drifted even further into idolatry. Think, for example, of the notorious King Ahab, who interacted with the prophet Elijah about a hundred years before Amos, 1 Kings 21-25. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. The viler, the better. Maybe he excused it under the banner of entertainment value. So by Amos' time, religion was a formality, for show, not sincere. People were hypocrites, faking it. But they weren't fooling God for one minute. 521 to 23, God speaking, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Their behavior and attitudes when they weren't at worship undercut anything they might try to do in religious ceremony. God hated it. 
He despised their religious activities. He couldn't stand the hypocrisy any longer. Even the songs were just noise to him. We see their duplicity and deceitfulness pointed to in 5, 25 and 26. God asks, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. They had made God in their own image. So essentially were bowing down to and worshiping themselves. The nouns in the original language may refer to actual gods in the Middle East. Moloch was associated with the worship of Saturn and the stars and the sacrifice of children. Here in Canada, we tend to be critical of the so-called American dream. But do we buy into it nonetheless? What cloud are we chasing? Do we think to ourselves, Uh, If I only do this or attain that, I'll be all set, and then I can sit back and take it easy. Pay careful attention to any little g-gods you may have picked up along your journey. We become what we worship. Any lesser gods will consume you and leave you bankrupt, enslaved, without hope. Revere Jesus as Lord. He calls you to costly discipleship, but delivers eternal life already in this mortal life through a relationship with his heavenly Father, through the Holy Spirit. Jesus still calls out to us, John seven thirty seven. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Section, fouling what's formed for God. The third area Amos takes aim at in this passage, besides the Israelites enriching themselves at others' expense and practicing idolatry, is their polluted attitude toward what matters in life. They fouled what was ethical. They couldn't stand what was right. They had to muddy things and twist it to their advantage. Note the words, turn into. What effect did they have upon what was going on around them? Amos 5, 7. You turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Also 6.12. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? No. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. They turned what should have been good into something bad. They spoiled it. They fouled the pure waters and made it evil. To review, they turned justice into bitterness. They cast righteousness to the ground. They turned justice into poison. They turned the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. Part of evil's deceptive depravity, its inner twistedness and corruptness, is that it can worm its way into something meant for good and turn it to its own selfish advantage. Courts didn't deliver just decisions because judges accepted bribes. Rich landowners somehow extorted grain from poor tenants who were near starvation. One of Amazon's free ebooks this month was a memoir about a man from Ghana who succeeded eventually in making his way to Spain. But at one point, the human smugglers that were guiding them abandoned them in the Sahara Desert. Out of 46 people who started out, only six survived. All the rest died in the desert. 
that is evil at its vilest, that manipulates and steals from those who are refugees, migrants who have very little to start with and abandons them to fend for themselves in a hostile environment. Foul indeed. Yet when we examine our own heart, we can find inclinations that are likewise unloving, uncaring. Words blurted out that attempt to bolster our own status even if they leave others looking or feeling bad. Business dealings that aren't exactly a win for both parties. Maybe we didn't quite tell the whole truth about that item we sold on Kijiji. We get infuriated when others don't keep their appointments. Yep, let ourselves off the hook rather easily when something comes up last minute and we have to cancel on someone else. It's part of evil's deceit that it never seems quite as bad when it's us doing the action compared to when someone does it to us. So the perversion of the golden rule, our our self-preserving unspoken approach becomes do unto others before they can do it unto you. Ethics fouled up. By contrast, this passage highlights what God has power to turn things into. 5.7 talks about humans turning justice into bitterness, but 5.8 shows God's goodness opposing such fouling. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, those constellations, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name, Yahweh. God is the one with real transforming power. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has gone, the new has come. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Christ, God turns our fallen sinner selves into righteous new creatures. Section, finding God before it's too late. The clock is ticking towards doomsday for the Israelites, the day of the Lord when they would be overrun by the Assyrians. Yet even in this passage, we find God's appeals for them to turn back to him. It's not too late to repent and change and get right with their maker. 5, 4, and 6. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It'll devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. When they seek and find him, it will affect how they treat others. Amos 5.14 Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. If they seek the Lord, they will live. When they seek good instead of evil, God will be with them and have mercy. Their seeking him will be evidenced by court proceedings that are just and fair, not tainted by bribes and corruption. The classic verse in this passage reveals that God at his core is passionate about justice and righteousness rather than formalized worship routines. Amos 5, 24. 
Can we say this one all together, if you can read it? Well, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What a vibrant word picture. Torrents of truth, a river of righteousness. You can keep your stone mansions, your summer and winter houses, your fancy beds decorated with ivory. Justice and righteousness are beautiful and impressive in the eyes of the Lord. Last section, justice and more. In closing, here's a story to illustrate justice, mercy, and grace in a courtroom setting, probably not like what went on in Amos' time. A man was caught and taken to court because he had stolen a loaf of bread. When the judge investigated, he found out that the man had no job and his family was hungry. He had tried unsuccessfully to get work and finally to feed his family, he had stolen a loaf of bread. Although recognizing the extenuating circumstances, the judge said, I'm sorry, but the law can make no exceptions. You stole the bread, and therefore I have to punish you. I order you to pay a fine of $10. The judge continued, but I want to pay your fine myself. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a $10 bill, and handed it to the man. As soon as the man took the money, the judge said, Now, I also want to cancel the fine and remit the sentence to time served. That is, the man could keep the money and go free. Furthermore, said the judge, I am going to instruct the bailiff to pass around a hat to everyone in the courtroom, and I am fining everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a man has to steal in order to have bread to eat. The money was collected and given to the defendant. Here, justice was meted out and paid in full, while mercy and grace were also enacted in full measure. We sinners were condemned in the pure eyes of heaven's court, yet Christ paid the price of our forgiveness on the cross. Now his spirit empowers us to likewise live lives of grace and mercy. Let's pray. Holy God, we see ourselves to some degree in Amos' accusations, lounging about on couches, investing in our beds, trying to take advantage of others in our dealings, not having our heart totally in it when we gather to worship. Have mercy on us. We know we've fallen short in many ways. Help us seek you that we may live. Pour out your Holy Spirit that we may live Christ-shaped lives full of justice and righteousness, a passion for doing what's right and honoring to you in every situation. In Jesus' name, amen.